Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Ad Week podcast where we talk about advertising, marketing, media, technology, pop culture. So in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with adweek.com. And with me as he is each week is Tim Nutt, our creative editor. Tim, good to have you back. Thanks for having me. And we've got two. Are you, are you both first timers? We are. Yep. Awesome. Two first-time guests. Uh, I can't believe it's taken us so long to get you guys on. Uh, Jameson Fleming, a web editor on adweek.com. Jameson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. And Yulia Kim, a, uh, what do we call you, a production artist, but an all-things art guru, animation gif expert, among many other things. Uh, Welcome to the podcast. Wow. Thank you. That was the best introduction I've ever received. It's going to be a really long LinkedIn title for you to put. Uh, well, we have both of you on here because you worked very heavily on our Graduate's Guide to Marketing and Media, which is an annual uh, package we put together on Adweek uh, for the recent graduates, for the upcoming graduates, for people looking to switch careers, a little of everything. And we will be talking about that quite a bit later in the show. We've also got a bunch of other things. Tim's going to walk us through the ads worth watching, uh, as he does every week. And we're going to talk about uh, some really fun stuff coming out of uh, Airbnb from overseas, uh, which uh, has had some really cool stunts. And they've got a new one that is definitely worth talking about. Uh, big shakeup at Ford uh, as they kind of chart a new future for the automaker and lots more. But first, the news. All right, this is my favorite news headline we've had in quite a while. Sweden has listed itself on Airbnb. Not not like they've joined Airbnb, the entire country. They've put the whole country on Airbnb. You see, in Sweden, we have this thing called freedom to roam. It's a right protected by the law that allows me to sleep and eat and walk pretty much wherever I want. Now you can too, because we listed the entire country on Airbnb. Welcome to my home. Welcome to Sweden. All right, so walk me through this, Tim. What does that mean? Well, so as you know, uh, Sweden is the country with the best tourism marketing in the world. This has been true for years and years. If you think back to 2012, there was the campaign called Curators of Sweden. 
which won a cyber Grand Prix over at Cannes. Uh, it was created by the agency Volunteer, who came up with this idea of giving at Sweden, the official uh, Twitter handle of Sweden, they give it once a week, they change it over to uh, random citizens. You can sign up to be the voice of Sweden for a week, and they basically don't vet these people at all. They just say, go ahead and do what you want to do. Just don't be too obscene about it. And it was, you know, really risky, but um, very much in, in step with this, you know, uh, the idea of transparency, which is really what, you know, people want uh, in tourism marketing. They want to know what they're going to get. And then last year, of course, there was the Swedish number, uh, which was the campaign by Ingo, which is a, a Ogilvy a gray network, WPP agency. And they came up with this uh, phone number. So Sweden got a phone number last year, and anybody around the world could call it and, and be connected to a random Swede who had signed up to field phone calls. And what happened when you called that one? When I called that one, uh, a journalist picked up who was writing a story for the AP. He was the bureau chief of the AP in, in Stockholm. And, and so that was pretty funny because I was calling as a journalist and, and reached him. But um, again, this was sort of an interesting uh, tourism idea um, and again, these guys had no vetting. The guy, the guy that uh, that I spoke to when I called um, was given almost no instruction at all on what to say. So yeah, even it, in the case study, they had people like they quoted from people saying, "I don't know why they put me on here. This place is terrible. You should never come." <laughs> exactly. And so, I mean, transparency has always been a big deal. Uh, this new campaign, though, uh, it's by Forsman and Bowden Forest, and what they did was they put Sweden on Airbnb. So if you go to Airbnb.com/sweden. Um, it presents, I think, nine different – it's not a lodging uh, page, so you don't actually go there to book rooms. Uh, but you can go there and you can see, I think, nine really cool places to visit in Sweden. And it's got reviews and recommendations and uh, where the you know the book now button, I think, just takes you to visit Sweden. So it's not a, an enormously robust site. Um, but, you know, it's, it's just another one of these big kind of fun ideas that Sweden seems to be so good at coming up with. Um, you know, I, I love how simple these ideas are. You know, um, you know, give give Sweden's Twitter handle to the people. Give Sweden a phone number. List Sweden on Airbnb. I mean, you can you can describe these ideas in four to five words each, and they're very delightful ideas too. Um, this new one, I don't think it's quite as ambitious or risky as the previous two. Um, you know, but uh, it doesn't feel as democratized. It's not like. This is right, and, and and the destination uh, page is really just a pretty traditional tourism type site. Um, but you know, Airbnb also is such a great brand to link up with if you're if you're a brand that wants to offer experiences to your customers. Um, Airbnb is great to, to link up with because what better of an experience than to go somewhere and experience something new? And that's what Airbnb is really all about offering. And so here, uh, it, it, it ties in perfectly with any tourism-type messaging. And uh, I'm not surprised that it was Sweden that got there first. Yulia, how do you decide where you're going to go on a vacation if we ever gave you a vacation? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, I kind of want to go anywhere. But what I like especially about this campaign and everything else that they've done is that they're kind of turning into, like, my one Swedish friend and then... This is what they say, or this You're is... a very schizophrenic Swedish friend yeah. who has nine million opinions. <laughs> exactly. But um, I think they've just done a really good job of being friendly and honest and, I don't know, kind of just, yeah, like, if this was a person, this is what they would be like. And I think, to me, as a young traveler, 
And as someone who likes to travel alone, that's also kind of very appealing. Well, it's nice that they don't they don't brush the bad stuff under the rug, like or at least you don't think they would because they have this atmosphere of like we'll tell you whatever, like that they're not trying to hide. Whereas everywhere else you travel, like usually the crappier it is, the more they're just going to tell you about the really really good stuff, and they don't even acknowledge that like there are streets you don't want to walk down at night. Yeah, I mean when I called the Swedish number last year, the guy was like, you know, he was a journalist, but I felt compelled to say, well, what is Sweden like? And so he told me, and he said, well, you know, the downside is it's kind of cold. And if you come in August, no one's going to be here because that's when we all take off ourselves. So, you know, he did kind of say, like, when would be the best time to visit? And it was very open and honest. And and tourism marketing is usually so manufactured and, and... and manicured, and so that was a kind of a breath of fresh air. Well, very interesting, and uh, we we certainly love keeping up with what Forsman Bodefors up to. Obviously, it's the agency that was behind Epic Split uh, for Volvo Trucks and their entire kind of live test series. Uh, so always, always, and fun. the new H and M campaigns. Yeah, lately, which yeah. have been very interesting. And it's I almost feel bad for our audiences that there's a lot of stuff that Forsman works on, which is really fascinating that just never comes overseas. Uh, they they did a series of like these. Uh, ads for uh, like the the cheap microwavable food that you buy at a at a discount store and they did a whole ad campaign behind those where they like focus groups asking people and they'd say it's okay i guess and then they would build an entire ad around like it's okay i guess and you know just highlighting that the product's okay but again it kind of it all seems to have the same scandinavian vibe where they don't take themselves too seriously and so it makes it seem a little more fun to visit All right. Uh, Also in the news, uh, in more weighty, newsy news, Ford has ousted its CEO. Uh, They have instead installed – he he had been in place for about uh, three years, and they have instead uh, put in place the the guy who was running their self-driving car subsidiary, uh, which is pretty telling – if, all, if that's all you knew, that's pretty telling right there. Um, there's obviously a lot of other problems going on. Their uh, car sales are down 25% uh, this year, uh, which is much worse than the rest of the industry. The cars they are selling aren't very profitable, uh, and they've had a litany of, of other issues. Uh, their stock price is down 40%, so it's probably a good time to get a new CEO. But I'm curious what you guys think of the fact that they would put in place someone who has this very innovation to the point of even self-driving car focus Jameson, what's your take on what this means for Ford? I don't think it's very surprising at all because GM has been long regarded as kind of the American car maker that's going to lead the way in automation with the self-driving cars. So I think it's pretty obvious that Ford has recognized that and they need to play catch up and they need to do it fast because, as you said, they're losing market share quickly. They're losing sales uh, compared to the other automakers. Uh, so I, I, don't, I don't really think it's much of a surprise. The New York Times, uh, I believe, broke this story. That's where I saw it. And they mentioned in there that Tesla is on the verge of a real nationwide, probably global rollout of, of their their first real kind of mainstream car. That's got to have a lot of these traditional brands uh, pretty scared between seeing the, you know how far self-driving car technology has come. And I, I was surprised even a year ago, people were arguing with me on Twitter about it'll never happen I was like, what are you talking? It'll never happen. I'll be surprised if it's not pretty standard within – well, I don't know. What are your guesses? Like when will self-driving cars become normal? I thought it was going to be you know, pretty quick into the 2020s. But like Uber is just having an issue with Pittsburgh now where they had that self-driving track that was supposed to be you know, all the rage in Pittsburgh. And now Uber's not living up to its deal in Pittsburgh and Pittsburgh souring on the self-driving cars. So there's there's a lot of skepticism still out there. Where goes Pittsburgh? It there does still feel like uh, science fiction 
in a way. Sure. And, you know, the, the bad press that you get when, when one of these things crashes, obviously, is, is a huge setback. Um, but this Ford story really is all about innovation. I mean, you know, Mark Fields did have a tough last year or so, although, you know, you go back to the first quarter of 2016, and that was a record sales quarter for Ford. And the guy that preceded Fields, uh, Alan Mulally, he was a longtime CEO. I think he was CEO for about eight years. You know, he inherited a company in the early 2000s that was in serious trouble, and, and he innovated in a more traditional sense uh, the vehicles. And, and you know, for the last latter half of, of the 2000s into the middle of this decade, um, Ford was doing great. But I think the issue now is that um, you have to do more than just make r- reliable, uh, you know, car- cars that people like, and you really have to look towards. Um, electric cars and, and, and self-driving cars, and I think that's where Ford has, has definitely kind of missed, missed the mark. I did not uh, name names at the beginning, and it's a good point that I should go back. Mark Fields is the uh, CEO on the way out. Jim Hackett is the CEO on the way in. Uh, and you're right, since Mulally was was definitely more of a, a, a name, uh, kind of an iconic CEO, I have to admit I had not even – I couldn't have even told you who the CEO of Ford was in, in recent years. Uh, so it will be interesting to see uh, what this does. But I, I, I do feel like – you know, if there's one technology that makes the most sense to really emerge in the next few years, it's self-driving cars because, I mean, just the the sheer number of fatalities caused by driver error, by drivers falling asleep, by drivers being drunk. If we can take a step back as a culture and stop thinking about uh, what if one of them hits people? Well, we're humans. We hit people all the time. Like, we're killing people every single day. Uh, so I, I I do think that once the insurance companies get on board and say, yes, this is about a 95% safer thing to do, I think that's when we'll see it really start going mainstream. But I would love to be able to – I mean, we're, we're here in New York. Uh, it, you know, I don't live in New York, and so as someone who has to drive long distances, you know, pretty often – I would love to just be able to read a magazine or something and not, you know, because we don't have mass transit uh, in a lot of the rural areas. So it should, uh, should be interesting. All right. Uh, one other set of data I want to talk about. This is an infographic uh, that we ran in a few days ago from data from Defy Media. Uh, so this isn't from YouTube or from Google, although it's going to sound like it in a second, but basically saying that 95% of Gen Z, uh, which, uh, what, what's the age range on Gen Z these days? 13 to. Are you in Gen Z? Which one? No. All I know is that they're younger than me. Yes. Yeah, so you're so. like, you're like well, it just as anything younger than me. Yeah. But but people pick on millennials even more, so it's not, not safer. But but yeah, I think it's something like 13 to 20-something. 20. Something. 20. <laughs> <laughs> um, so 95% of Gen Z uh, uses YouTube, according to this, which you think, okay, sure, everybody uses YouTube, except that the second highest was Instagram at 69%. So that's the difference between 69% and 95%. Basically, it's almost like uh, it's a utility. It's like saying how many of you use electricity. You know, at 95%, penetration is a, is a pretty intense for anything, much less for one specific brand. Uh, 50% when asked said they could not live without it, uh, which may be some hyperbole, except that the number two highest answer, and that was Snapchat. They couldn't live without Snapchat, 15%. So despite the stereotypes that young people can't live without Snapchat, even when asked, only 15% of them said that. Uh, whereas 50% said they could not live without YouTube. And as you dig down in that infographic, uh, it really becomes obvious why. They say that's their number one source for where they go for comedy. It's the number one source for where they go for how-to tips on how to do something. Whereas, uh, so I, I, let's see if I can find that. It's 66% go to YouTube for how-to info. Only 9% go to Pinterest, which was number two. That's a huge... So basically they're saying, I go to YouTube or nothing. <laughs> you know. 
<laughs> I just I just don't figure it out on my own. Um, and then uh, 51% said it was their number one source of comedy. 24% said it was their number one source for shopping recommendations. Uh, just no one of those data points is all that surprising, but it, taken in total, it's really fascinating that for them it is it is almost Google. Like that this is a generation that having YouTube is just having access to learn or do just about anything. I don't know. Was there anything surprising in there for you guys? Uh, to me, the fact that 37% actually knew what Google Plus was and use it was shocking. I feel like the oh. Gen Z just misread that as 37% know what Google, Google is, is. <laughs> plus all the different facets that Google has, like Google Docs and Or maybe it's 3.7%. Maybe there's just some <laughs> that, decimal. That to me was by far the most shocking. Yeah, I noticed a few Google Plus mentions in there, and I kind of wondered the same thing. It's like, does, does a 16-year-old even going to recognize the name Google Plus? Like throw out, out this survey. Yeah. <laughs> like, they were seven years old when Google Plus came out. How, how could they possibly know what it is? All right. Well, we are going to dive into uh, my favorite part of the show each week, which is where Tim uh, recaps the ads. Actually, we're taking the time to go back and watch on purpose. We call these ads worth watching. Yeah, so ads worth watching for this week. I'm going to start with the Martin Agency's latest uh, pre-roll stunt, uh, which is pretty cool. It's an ad that skips itself, uh, which makes for kind of a fun headline, first of all. Um, so as everybody knows, Martin it's Agency... Like the, it's like the ad, the self-driving car of ads. <laughs> it is, exactly. <laughs> They're innovating. Uh, Martin Agency, as we know, does such great pre-roll campaigns, uh, mostly out of the Richmond office for Geico. Uh, going back, of course, to the Unskippable campaign, which won so many ad awards uh, around the world, uh, the Fast Forward campaign after that, and now they have this Crushed campaign where the it shows the ad and the giant logo comes in and crushes everything in the scene, which is pretty amusing. So now Martin Agency's London office has done something kind of similar in spirit for a totally different client. Uh, it's for the bank Barclays, and they created this pre-roll ad that skips itself um, Essentially, what that means is they got um, Bob Partington, who's the pretty well-known First First Avenue machine director, and they got him to build a Rube Goldberg machine. Um, now we've seen a lot of these in advertising, you know, going back to Honda Cog, of course, famously in 2003, probably further than that, where you build an elaborate set and you have this chain reaction of events um, that eventually, at the end, kind of delivers some kind of brand message. So in this ad, um, Bob created a machine. A guy presses a button. This machine gets set into motion. There's a lot of moving parts to it, uh, a lot of different props, all of which uh, somehow reference Barclays' business. So there's like an automotive. There's like a bunch of tires representing their automotive business. There's um, a bunch of clothes hanging on a line representing their retail business or fashion business. Um, the, the, the corporate banking is, is involved with. And then at the end, the machine has an actual physical skip button in the corner, and the very last action of the machine is to spring a hammer, which strikes and, and smashes the skip button. So then the ad finishes. And the ad is 20 seconds long, so I guess conceptually the idea is that normally you'd be watching a 30-second pre-roll, but you, you get 10 seconds off um, <laughs> because of this Rube, Rube Goldberg machine. So I don't know. I thought this was pretty fun. And, you know, what I liked about it, it kind of combines a couple things that we've seen a lot in advertising, pre-roll stunts and Rube Goldberg machines, neither of which are 
that innovative anymore, but brought together, uh, I thought it was kind of kind of cute. I never think I'm going to be amused by them, but I always stick around till the end. So I guess it's somewhat effective. Yeah, and I, there was actually a fun um, behind the scenes uh, video with with Rube Goldberg machines. Like behind the scenes is kind of half the fun because it doesn't work for days on end usually, and and. Um, seeing the reaction of the cast and crew um, when it finally works is always pretty amusing. I, I thought it was funny how high my bar has gotten on Rube Goldberg machines that I was at the Hirschhorn Museum in D.C. recently, the Modern Art Museum, and they have this artist created a Rube Goldberg performance thing that they filmed, and then it's a 45-minute Rube, Rube Goldberg because a lot of it's based on chemical reactions, so things will drop into a bucket and then it will slowly burble up or it'll explode and catch fire. It was cool, but... It edits uh, quite a bit. Like, despite being 40 minutes or whatever long, it there are jump cuts and there are things where they obviously it didn't, they wanted to relocate the camera and all this. Whereas now, if we were watching that in an ad setting, I would say, like, oh, what a cop out. Like, I want to see every second of that thing. I, otherwise, it just feels too easy. Uh, but this one, I, I got the sense, was a, an older, you know, one of the earlier art, artsy impressions. But it was like watching Honda Cog. Yeah, uh, it, was. You know, it was very, very similar. Um, and just uh, showed you that the art did kind of inspire the the you know the advertising culture, which has probably taken it about as far as it needs to go at this point. When you said the uh, the guy who you know, one of the best known for making these Rube Goldberg devices, I was thinking the Goldie Blocks ad. You remember where they had, the, or the guy who did, worked with OK Go? <laughs> it's just the one like I was the, thinking of. Yeah, I was like, there's there's multiple Rube Goldberg guys. <laughs> this guy also <laughs> makes zoetropes. So he made the the Stella Chalice zoetrope where they. They spun that thing Those around. Those spinning things. Yeah. That, yeah. It's pretty cool. Uh, first half machine is all about building, you know, stuff and then filming it versus CGI or anything like that. Uh, well, what else do you have for us this week? Uh, well, the other campaign I wanted to mention is the new Axe campaign out of 72 and Sunny. It's called uh, Is It Okay for Guys? Um, so as everybody knows, Axe has a bit of a history, um, a notorious history in advertising. You know, they used to be the poster child for very stereotypical depictions of, of men in particular. You know, this is a brand that's been knocked over the years for being sexist um, towards women, but actually it, it had an even narrower, more stereotypical view of men in, in many ways and, and what men want. And, you know, invariably in the old ads, uh, masculinity was just simply the pursuit of women and that was the end of it. And so, you know, they've been slowly moving away from that for, for quite a few years now. You, you remember the Susan Glenn ad that BBH did in 2012. That was a bit more nuanced. And they've been slowly moving in this direction. Um, but early last year, 72 and Sunny, which is the brand's current agency, um, really changed everything with this find your magic positioning. Um, it launched early last year, and it really showed a lot of, you know, much more uh, richer, more diverse views of what, it, what it, masculinity is and what it, is to, what it means to be a man. Uh, so the launch spot of that campaign showed a guy in high heels. It showed another man in a wheelchair. Um, this, you know, this was a very different look for Axe, obviously. And you could kind of feel the brand changing. Um, and so this new film, which launched last week, really just advances things to a whole new level. Uh, it's called, uh, as I said, it's called Is It Okay for Guys? And it, it reveals how anxious uh, young men are about masculinity oftentimes and, and how, how they feel about either adhering to or straying from um, the, the social norms about uh, masculinity. So the campaign is based on actual Google searches. Uh, so I think the agency basically went to Google and typed in Is It Okay for Guys? dot, dot, dot. And they, they looked at all the different autocompletes that were there. And, you know, there was a lot of, is it okay for guys to not like sports, to wear pink, to, to experiment with other guys, to be depressed, to be scared, all these things that um, traditionally would not have been seen as manly. 
Um, and so, you know, this campaign, it's, it's really interestingly shot. It's very gritty. Um, but, you know, in the old advertising, men had one struggle, which was to get the girl. And in the new advertising, you know, that's really kind of barely on the radar. It's, it's much more the struggle is with their own anxieties and phobias. And the larger campaign is really about trying to help men and give them resources to answer these questions that are raised in the campaign. And uh, there's various partnerships they have with some nonprofits that to, to try to achieve that. And, you know, the larger stated goal of this campaign is, is not to help guys score women, but it's to help them be happier and be better people. And, you know, in this age of marketing where your brand often has to stand for something bigger than a product pitch, you know, that's a much bigger and more promising thought and uh, much more in step with the times, too. Do you want to listen to some of it? Yeah, let's just listen to a clip. Is it okay to be skinny? Pass the ball, bro. Is it okay that? to not like sports? Is it okay to be a virgin? To experiment with other guys? Is it okay for guys to wear pink? Is it okay for guys to, to be nervous? To have long hair? To like cuts? To take a selfie? To shave you? To be depressed? To be scared? You know, and... and when you talk about masculinity and advertising, you know, you also have to talk about like how Old Spice kind of destroyed those old stereotypes anyway. And, you know, I think Axe kind of like was winking in a lot of its old advertising too, but just not overtly and not as, not as much of a, of a spoof mentality. But I think, you know, the old view of, of, of the masculine man from the 50s has, has basically evaporated now that Axe has, has done this. Yeah, I, um, I interviewed uh, last year at Cannes, I interviewed John Hegarty uh, on stage, uh, Sir John Hegarty, the founder of BBH, the agency that worked on Axe for a long time. And I asked him about kind of the changing message of Axe becoming a little less sexist, uh, not a little, I mean really changing their, their focus – and to your point, he, you know, he never felt it was a sexist campaign. He felt it was uh, kind of a joke that everyone he they felt like everyone was in on it, and that they were pointing fun at the insecurity of guys or just the entire concept that spraying yourself with this magic formula is going to be like love potion number nine. And you're going to be surrounded by people. They literally had ads with thousands of women rampaging in bikinis, rampaging one skinny dude. And to them, I think they felt that it was obvious that they were making fun of the entire concept of the ad and that there was a wink. He said that over time, though, the client uh, – I can't remember if he pinned it on the client or that's just how I remember it. But that they kind of – they bought into it a little too much. The customers bought into it a little too much. And it became overly literal. And there, it wasn't funny anymore. It was just a sexist joke. And we had this debate a lot with Old Spice's Mandroid, I think they called it, right? It was like a really awkward robot who, if he sprayed himself with Old Spice, women would do anything to, to be with him. And it was like, is this either a really sexist ad or like a really anti-sexist ad? You know, it gets hard to figure out, when are we winking at this point? It's like out of both eyes, you know? It's, um, I don't, yeah, it's, yeah, this new stuff, um, it, it, it is not uh, going to be misconstrued in that sense. But Yulia has – I feel like Axe has been trying to pivot for like five years now. <laughs> have they Have they had – or is their cultural perception still just the same? Um, I don't know, but it has worked on me. Like I went from hating Axe to absolutely loving their latest stuff. Like when I saw this come out, I sent this to my boyfriend – and then um, I... Spray yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and Goodbye. I remember once I was working with Robert Clara on how Axe is using influencers, like on Instagram and everything like that, to promote their products. I don't know. I watched like five videos. And then over a week, I went to, I think, four different Rite Aids to try to find the one hair mousse thing 
and got it for my boyfriend. So sometimes, like, this is working, and I don't know how or why, but I fit into this um, target, I guess, somehow. Um, but I really like their new stuff. I, I actually, I think the hair, they've done a really good job with their hair, styling, product, whatever. At, but it's because I don't have a preset notion of what, you know, Axe hair product, it what, what it should smell like. or You know what I mean? It's Versus, like, like, their body... Yeah, versus that cloud of acts that whether that's still real or not, that's I think back to the gym, you know, six years ago or however long of just this cloud of axe spray. Um, but you know, Old Spice, like I am now an Old Spice guy, and growing up, I never would have used Old Spice in my life because my dad used it every day, and just be like, and that's exactly the pivot that they managed to get through is going from being that thing your granddad wore to being that thing that you would actually use every day. Um, so it's it's certainly possible. All right. Uh, well, thank you so much for rounding up the ads worth watching this week, Tim. Uh, be sure to check out adweek.com, our creativity section, our ad freak blog. Tim runs all that, our ad of the day, and our brand marketing section. So uh, definitely be sure to check that out. And you can follow him on Twitter. He's N-U-D-D, Nud, right? That's it. All right. And now it's time to move on to our big discussion of the week. Well, as I mentioned at the top of the show, this past uh, week we unveiled our 2017 Graduate's Guide to Marketing and Media. Uh, we kicked this off last year uh, with as basically the idea being that uh, we run all sorts of stuff over the course of the year that can help you in your career. It's a real focus for us at Adweek of helping you do your job better. Uh, but uh, we didn't really have anything specific to the graduates, people coming out. Uh, and so we started this last year. This year, uh, we still had a mix of the trends that we were seeing, the tricks that are working, advice, lots of advice. Uh, Jameson was the lead editor on this project. Yulia ran all the art on this, uh, which was fantastic on both fronts. I thought the stories turned out great, and the uh, the art was uh, fantastic. Uh, some of our a- animated gifts, uh, Yulia has a very subtle style uh, of animation sometimes, like uh, for our piece on how to avoid uh, getting a job where you are you're, uh, kind of overly crushed by the work balance uh, of long hours. And it was a guy sitting at his desk with the uh, the buffering, loading uh, icons on his eyes. That was brilliant. That's the that only... was a collaboration between Diana McDougall and me. <laughs> yes, fellow web artist. Uh, so, yeah, really fantastic job on the art. But let's talk about the content. Uh, first off, um, let's start with you, Jameson. Tell me about what are some of the trends you noticed as you were going through these stories and the sources uh, this time around? What were what were some of the themes of advice that you were seeing? I think overall the, the big piece of advice that seemed to keep coming over and over and over again was this idea that to make yourself stand out, you have to do it by doing something that shows what value you're going to provide, that you just can't do some stunt that's really creative But unless you actually show a specific agency or a brand what you're going to bring to the table through that stunt or through your resume or through your interview, that they're just going to move on to the next person. Uh, And you need to do it by sounding humble. Uh, We had one uh, one person basically say, we found the best writer we've ever had coming out of college. But he was arrogant. People banned him, didn't like him, and so we didn't hire him. Um, and so it seems that you need to kind of, you know, be level-headed and make sure that, you know, you don't come off as, you know, you're ready to conquer the world and you already know how to do it because they're not going to not gonna go for that. I mean, they have to work with these people every day. I exactly. think that's something where you come out of college fetishizing talent maybe a little too much. Talent's great, but you can't just be a complete jerk or else no one's going to want to sit five feet away from you 
you know, and they're, they, you know, I think recruiters more, you know, it's a really good point because I, I will say I've heard recruiters mention more about teamwork in the last few years than I've ever heard them before because I do think they're noticing how much a difference it makes when everyone just gets along and, you know, it's, it's like you still want diversity. You don't want a big homogenous group, but at the same time, they need to be able to move in the same direction. What are some other themes you noticed? Um, overall, I mean, it was, we got a lot of just great stories this year. I feel like last year we, just gave you a ton of tips and advice, but this year we're kind of able to paint more of a picture of to give inspiration of what to do in your job hunt. Um, and so we had a few great stunts. Uh, Wonderman's Tuesday Polyak uh, uh, told us about how back in the 90s she created 11 wallets for creative directors, uh, figured out a way to sneak past security at 11 different agencies drop the wallets in the agencies with her portfolio, uh, fake driver's license for the creative director so that it would be returned to him. Uh, some of her great, her bigger work were like the dollar bills, uh, where the pictures of your family would go. It was her smaller work. And so she caught the attention of 11 creative directors, and every single one of them called her back, and half of them offered her jobs. And so she was able to basically show everything of who she was in a simple little wallet instead of, you know, sending a book out to every single agency that she wanted to work for. Yeah. Tim, do you have any favorites like that of stories you've heard over the years of how these advertising folks got their jobs? Well, I really like that one, first of all. (laughs) That one's pretty great, you know. Um, We've seen a few of these over the years. You know, most recently there was the the students at – at Droga 5, uh, wanting to intern at Droga 5. We talked about this on the podcast a couple weeks ago where they basically – Twitter stalked someone and started making videos around the uh, creative recruiter over at Droga's um, based on her Twitter feed. So, you know, you do see these kind of stunts a fair amount. I think Jameson's right. I think um, sometimes, uh, you know, they can, they can be pretty empty and hollow as, as gimmicks. Um, but if you, if you kind of reveal, uh, you know, a flash of creativity in there where the agency can, can say, well, that was actually a pretty unique bit of thinking, uh, I think then you, you do separate yourself from the pack there. So, um, Yulia, tell me, you know, you obviously know a few more people of recent graduate age than I do these days. What are they coming, what kind of world are they coming into? What are they scared about? What are they excited about? You know, how is it different even from when you graduated? Um, I think there's just a lot of pressure um, to be the most creative person as soon as you graduate, to have the most ready portfolio, to be like a very self-actualized 20-something-year-old. And I think that's kind of asking a lot. But, um, and so yeah, from the conversations I've had with friends who just graduated, their biggest worry is kind of like, I'm not actually a complete human being, but how do I present myself as one? And I think even like reading the stories from our guide, like the Wyden Kennedy piece of what they're looking for. I think I was kind of asking for that too. Like we want you to be passionate about something. And it, while it's good, I think there's also, I don't know, you're, you're 21, 22, you just graduated. It's kind of hard to find something you're so passionate about and genuine, which is why I think a lot of stunts come off as empty because they're reaching the wow factor because that's what we're hearing. Like we want you to be the most brilliant creative person, but... I think the more difficult part is kind of finding the time to find your own creative voice and then, you know, unleashing it somehow. I I think, uh, I can't remember if I've told the story on the podcast, I don't think so, how I got my agency job. Um, Have I ever told you the story, Julia? Actually, I think I know how you got 
the ad week job and it was yeah, well, Tim, Tim Nudd recruited me. Yeah, thanks for that. That was 10 years ago almost exactly. Um, but, but no, my agency job, I, um, I was going into advertising with absolutely no advertising background whatsoever. I had been a journalism major. I had worked at newspapers. And so a lot of advertising people were like, well, you've got to do an internship and you've got to do this and you've got to do this. And I decided uh, – this is advice I always give people is lean into your, str- your weakness. Um, like sometimes like if you lean into it hard enough, it comes back around into the strength category. Uh, and so a lot of you – know, I think we tend to just get distracted by thinking of things as our worst features or our – you know, worst pet peeves. And so for me, I just decided, well, I'm going to focus on the fact that I don't have any experience. And so I wrote my cover letter was a memo dated one year in the future. And it was a memo to the creative director I was applying to. Um, and I basically just said, it's funny looking back when you took a chance on someone who had zero advertising experience a year ago, uh, but look at all that we've accomplished in the year since then. And then I came up with a bunch of fake campaigns for their, their real clients and uh, they were all really funny and somewhat obscene. Um, uh, and, uh, and then when he called me, he was just like, you are a weird dude, but <laughs> we want you to come in and interview. And I got the job and I worked there for eight years. Uh, so, you know, I think it is one where... Sometimes you just kind of have to embrace the fact that you are completely unprepared for something, but do it in a way that shows that you'll still have utility, you know, that you'll still be useful. How did you get this job? I think I just called you. Yeah, it was. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a really good story, I don't think. I got really lucky. Um, And I remember you called me during my finals week, and I had no clue, like, who it was. But it was from Birmingham, Alabama. And it was, I was, like, studying for three different finals. And I was like, who the hell is calling me right now? 205 number. (laughs) And it was... um, in the journalism library, it was super quiet, but I was like, okay, I'll just take this call. And I don't think I, I don't think I'm a very angry person, but you really caught me at a moment when I think I was just so so swamped and I picked up and I kind of sounded angry. I was like, hello. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this and, is what I remember. And that is not me. And so um, but it went really well. And I think it was because of um, just a mutual acquaintance. A mutual like, acquaintance, much, yeah. but also the way that you just Happened to drop your business card. No, it's very. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, I had dropped uh, some. That's except it legitimately happened. I dropped a business card. Actually, I think I'd given it to someone and they didn't care and they dropped it. <laughs> but then someone else came up to me and said, "Is this your card?" And then she ended up referring me to Yulia. So yeah, it is funny how like the, all those weird happenstances uh, can come in. Um, well, I wanted to now that we've had all these great person. How did you? get this job tim you've been here for like 64 years uh <laughs> i was writing for um an oil and gas newsletter out of college and, so it's uh, an obvious progression and, and i and i worked there for a couple of years and i was like yeah i was like i'm not passionate about this at all <laughs> <laughs> no i mean i was always drawn to um creativity so i called up ad week and i was like do you have any copy editing jobs and they were like, yeah, you can come in and interview. That's how it worked in the pre-millennial economy. You could just call up and ask for a job, and they'd be like, how many How many do you want? <laughs> yeah, no, this was when Adweek was like uh, 120 pages a week, and they needed all the help they my could Lord. get. My Lord. Yeah. <laughs> this was 98 or so. Jur- journalism pre, pre-2000. pre <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, it's, and then, yeah, I, I, uh, I got started with Adweek because I was a frequent commenter. Uh, ten years ago, which corrupted journalist was, yeah, was your was handle? My, my fake username because I was afraid to use my real name on uh, because I didn't know if my my new bosses would be cool with that. Um, but yeah, that was when you just never know. That was 
10 years ago, I guess, being a commenter was a good thing. Um, I did want to talk about a few of the other ones. We, we've talked a lot about the stunts, uh, but one story that we ran that I think all of us internally were kind of fascinated by is this idea of becoming a, a nomad. And uh, we're seeing this a lot more uh, lately. It's, it's always been popular with Canadians, uh, with some Europeans, but this idea of you graduate and then you just go travel the world, taking a job wherever you can. Uh, I featured a guy recently who was from the Netherlands and took a job in Barcelona. And I was like, why Barcelona? He said, ah, you know, why not? Uh, but for Americans, I don't think that's ever felt like a really safe option, you know, in that you wouldn't come out of college and be like, I'll just travel this, you know, overseas. What? So we did a story on kind of how to do that, how to make it actually happen, a lot of the different programs and opportunities that can make that happen. Jameson, what were some of the themes of, of if you want to look into that as an option what are the pros and cons, and how do you make that happen? Um, there were two main ways that uh, kind of were presented to us as being able to do this. And one was uh, a lot of – a couple of agencies had fellowship programs where you can apply uh, to go work uh, in various offices around the world. And basically you need to show how much you're willing to basically embrace the culture, learn the language – uh, bring, you know, an American uh, viewpoint to, uh, you know, these agencies that are kind of looking for a fresh perspective. And then the other one was just basically go join an agency that has offices all over the world and through that just transfer your way through the network. And so a lot of the pros are basically you get to see the world, uh, you get to just learn, uh, you know, a whole new skill set, trying to reach an audience that you really don't know a lot about, that you pretty much have to immerse yourself uh, in the culture to be able to figure out, you know, what works for these people. And then that's a skill that you can basically bring to any office around the world and work with any client because they've seen that you were able to reach a, you know, completely different target audience that, you know, was kind of outside uh, your comfort zone. And really the, the biggest con seemed to be it's just tough. You know, you, you're working with people who uh, English is probably their second language or their third language or their fourth language, depending on what office you're in. And so if you don't really pick up their language quickly, uh, you're going to struggle because, uh, you know, there's just a big, big gap there in knowledge then. I remember asking someone in the when I went to Amsterdam, everyone speaks English and they speak it almost with no accent. I mean, with a somewhat American accent, I guess. And I asked someone, you know, could I move here and just start working? And he said, yes, you could just never leave Amsterdam because in Amsterdam, everyone speaks English. But he said, if you go out to rural Netherlands, he's like, you'd be fine until you actually left the city limits. And then you would run into people who actually don't speak any English whatsoever. Yulia, uh, you were born overseas, but you've obviously lived uh, in America since you were, uh, you know, pretty young, like eight, nine. Or nine. Yeah. Um, do you have any interest in working abroad? Well, I have worked abroad um, during college. I studied abroad and worked at, at this very like international, um, like finance company. Sort of. It doesn't sound that sexy, but it's kind of like the Google of. Brussels, um, which was really cool. And I think the really valuable thing I learned there, just working with people from all over Europe and other parts of the world, was um, pause and ask questions. Like in a meeting or whenever somebody gave me an assignment, I think that was the most, um, like taking a pause before I asked something new or just to let everything sink in was really great because with different cultures, different languages, um, you kind of need to give yourself a little bit to process everything that they mean. Um, and so I think that's um, 
I don't know, that's something that I really enjoyed with working with people from different cultures. And I think just growing up in a household that, you know, we have two languages and many different kinds of backgrounds, even talking to my parents or translating to other people, I've learned it's very important to just let people take a moment and let myself take a moment and to let everything like sink in. The the other thing maybe kind of on the other side of that coin though is that I grew up assuming that everyone was annoyed with Americans because we're somewhat annoying and we're brash and we're loud. And I think as a professional, which is all true, but then as a professional, I've seen that, uh, you know, traveling to international conferences and I talk to people from other countries and I love sitting down with for lunch with people from a country I've never been to or barely know anything about. And a recurring theme I've heard from them is that they are jealous of Americans because we are very uh, direct, that we can, and it's culturally, people just say, oh, that person's American. So they they get to do that. We raise our hand. We, we uh, you know, we ask questions. We uh, are somewhat brash, I think. And again, I always took that as a negative that people would find us annoying, but I've had several people mention to me, it's like, oh no, I, you know, I was raised in school, don't speak unless spoken to don't raise your hand, you know, discipline is the most important thing, not personal, you know, knowledge or, or accomplishment. And I think a lot of those people have gotten into the professional world and realized that that that's a real handicap if you, if you aren't willing to put yourself out there and really step forward. So I think you, you make a really good point. I think the other side of that though, is that like, we almost get Americans traveling abroad to work would probably get a little more of a free pass of like, oh, those Americans, they always <laughs> stick their neck out and, and say whatever they feel like. But it can be a, a good thing. Yeah, I think along those lines, uh, in that story, Christine Berkner, the staff writer, uh, talked to John Steele from WPP, and uh, he basically said that he came from, I think, England or London to San Francisco, and and over there, they basically said, you know, put this on the air, and you've got like a month to do it. Here was like, yeah, we'll, we'll do that in a week, and he was like just shocked by the fact that in America, everything turned around because everybody just kind of put their – you know, foot to the pedal and said, "Okay, we're going we're going to do this right away, and we're going to turn around quickly." Oh, we don't take a month off for vacation. Then. That's that's true. Going to help, uh, Tim. This is a bit off topic, but I am curious. Like, so many Australians come to America to work in in advertising. I don't really know the national breakdown, but I feel like I meet Australians in the creative industry all over the place. Do you know what's behind that trend? Or not really? I, I mean, I know there's. We were talking about Sweden. There's a lot of Swedes as well. I think there's just some some cultures that are, you know pretty creative. I don't know if it's in the water or what it is, but um, yeah, certainly a lot of Aussies here. I think the market in Australia is a lot smaller too. So if you're a talented Australian, I mean, there's a reason David Droga left Australia, right? Yeah. I I, I feel like there's a, a dry sense of humor goes a long way. I think I think that's why, you know, British creatives, Australian creatives, Scandinavians have some not just dry, straight up dark sense of humor. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I and I think all of those things work in advertising really well, just about everywhere, you know, even in completely different cultures. Uh, but it is something I've noticed or I'm just like a lot of young I ran into a an Australian guy at Cannes last year and he we had been talking for fifteen minutes before I noticed he was holding a gold lion. You know what this is like running into someone and realizing they're holding an Oscar. Like while you're talking, because I mean they hadn't you you get handed your trophy and you 
you don't get to like walk home yet. So he just went straight to the bar. And, and I said, Oh, wow, congratulations. You know, that must be a big deal. He said, Well, you know, it lets me keep my visa a little longer. <laughs> because you can argue that I have an exceptional talent. But he said, you know, I've just been staying in America for years on this kind of, of and, you, uh, and you talk about dark, I mean, you, ca- you can't really imagine um, dumb ways to die coming out of another country. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what I was thinking of. An entire yeah. cartoon out of train fatalities. And yeah, it's great to see fun work like that. I mean, the other huge, enormous campaign that I remember out of Australia was the world's best job. Remember when they, uh, yeah. the yeah. caretaker Queensland. of the Queensland uh, by, out by the Barrier Reef or whatever. That was one of the great early, you know, early PR successes. Well, so to get, I guess, back on specific topic, Tim, what is your advice for graduates coming out of college right now looking to get a job in advertising marketing? Well, you know, I'm going to punt that question to um, the people in the business that we've been interviewing lately for our Creative Thinkers series. So this is, you know, I really love the Graduate's Guide, and, you know, it's a great thing that we do every year. We also have you know, fairly regular content in our creative, uh, our creativity section. So if you go to adweek.com slash creativity and you scroll about halfway down the page, um, there's a section called Creative Thinkers. And we talk to people in the business about all sorts of things, really. And the, the centerpiece of that series is, is the best ads ever, where we have pretty well-respected creatives pick their favorite ads of all time. But we also have a series called Advice for Young Creatives. And it really kind of ties into what the Graduate Guide does. And we ask them, you know, we say, you know, what do you tell people at your agencies, uh, the young people, people just coming up into the business? What's your advice for them? And we've done, I think, four of these compilation videos where there's, you know, three or four top creative directors in each video kind of, you know, telling us what they tell their young people. And it's really interesting. I mean, it goes, uh, the advice is everything from really big picture stuff like Jeff Goodby said, don't go to an advertising school. Go to a regular college, and then you you know you should, you'll come in with a much richer uh, experience. All the way down to very specific tips, like you know you got to collaborate and be humble, and don't come in thinking you you know everything. I mean, we mentioned that earlier. Um, so we're going to be doing a lot more of those videos too. So if if you know people in the ad business, if you want to hear what the uh, some of the, the you know the the big folks, the big creative directors in this business, uh, the advice they have for you, um, yeah, check out our creative thinkers videos. Hey, uh, you know that reminded me too. One thing I've noticed talking to a lot of you know we sit down a lot with a lot of these talk top creative directors, you know CEOs. One thing I hear them complain about a lot with younger people coming into the industry, and I actually understand this, is that they don't have enough understanding and awareness and respect for the legends of the advertising industry, the iconic personalities, the the Burnbaws and the um – yeah, who else would you put in there? The David Ogilvy or Leo Burnett, and the and it's not even just the people; it's what they what they represented and what they you know the the lessons that you can learn from those from those from folks. Yeah, and I and I one hundred percent understand why young people coming in the industry do not see a lot of parallel between Ogilvy on advertising and what they actually do every day. And I I would actually side with uh, the younger folks on that one. But I will say, as a job hunting strategy, it sure does pay off because I hear this complaint a ton that and it's not just the the name on the door of that agency. Uh, it's it's just this perception that millennials, that Gen Z, that, that the younger folks... I actually love this because I don't think we should sit around worshiping our, our heroes from 30 years ago. I think we should be looking at what's working now, but at the same time, I get it. And to your point, I think it's about recognizing... Why David Ogilvy was important is because of the transition that advertising made under him. Why Bill Burnbaugh is important. You know, he changed kind of the entire tone and vibe, atmosphere of advertising. Uh, you know, it's 
th- those people are important, but m- I guess most importantly for this conversation, they give you a nice little leg up when you're interviewing. If you can be 22 years old and cite some of those people or quote from uh, you know Ogilvy on advertising when you're not applying at Ogilvy, probably do pretty good. Yeah, and the other thing I hear a lot is, you know, to, to be good at advertising, immerse yourself in everything but advertising. So, you know, you can spend all day on adweek.com, but you should also be going to movies, you should be going to, to art openings, you should be going to plays, you should be absorbing all sorts of culture because that culture will get reprocessed and will end up in your work somehow. Well, it's like, it's like I started to tell you this the other day when um, Old Spice built this gigantic octopus squid sea monster uh, that you could control via Twitch, uh, the, the streaming service. And that was, to me, very clearly inspired by Twitch Plays Pokemon, which was this thing where, you know, the people uh, figured out a way to play Pokemon, original Pokemon, by having people post comments on Twitch. And so it was mad chaos. And if you're watching, the characters just slamming into walls back and forth, and, like, he would pick up something really important and then drop it. And then, you know, it's just because it's random comments being from thousands of people. And so that was one where I was like, oh, I really enjoyed that. We never wrote about that. That's not something that would ever come up in advertising. But then sure enough, here's a, a campaign from one of the top agencies. You know, It was Wyden, I assume, right? Uh, so Wyden and Kennedy creates this campaign for Old Spice. And I was like, that is – I guarantee you someone cited Twitch Plays Pokemon, this bizarre you know, cultural thing. And so I think that's true. It's just immersing yourself, going to art museums, but paying attention to the Reddit dregs as well. It all pays off. I also had an interesting conversation at Clio judging last year with uh, David David Colbush from Droga London. I think I've probably mentioned this conversation before because you know it really stuck with me. Where you know they are building a really a new kind of an agency there. It's a very small operation at Droga London, and the way they're hiring, they're just finding people that have all these weird side projects, and they're saying you know if you have a weird, cool, interesting side project, you're probably in a really cool, interesting person who will bring that energy somehow to brands and what they're trying to do is they're they're not trying to funnel that creativity necessarily into an existing branded template what they're doing is they're saying well you made something really cool how do like what brand could benefit from that particular thing not even that kind of thinking but that particular thing you're making already like what how could we use that so that kind of indulges um you know the non-branded, outside of work kind of passions that a lot of creative people have, and I think that's fascinating. Yeah, I love seeing like side hustle culture kind of spawning these creative projects where I'll meet young people who tell me about these things they're doing. And I'll say, "Why did you do that?" And they just give me this look, and they just kind of shrug. They're like, oh, "Why not?" <laughs> you know, it's like they're not making money at it, but at the same time, it was a passion play, and I think. Any creative director loves seeing passion because you don't want people who are just going to clock in, clock out, and phone it in throughout the day. But, uh, yeah, it's a really good point. All right. Um, Well, thank you so much, both of you, for joining us. Uh, Jameson, Yulia, it was great to have you on. We'll have you back sooner than however many years it took us to get you on here. (laughs) One. I don't know. One. One year. Uh, All right. I'm David Griner with Adweek. We've got a few things coming up uh, soon. We've got our Disruptors issue featuring women who are are changing the game, shaking up the the marketing industry. We've got our Can preview. We've got our live coverage from the Can Lions coming terrifyingly soon. That's just a few weeks away. And uh, we'll have our Creative 100, which is our annual list of the most creative professionals in America. Uh, That's going to be in our Can preview issue as well. And Chicago City Spotlight. We have so much stuff, so much stuff uh, coming up in the next few weeks. Uh, So definitely keep a close eye on adweek.com for that and keep an ear on this podcast as well. Don't forget you can drop us a note at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. And uh, yeah, we love hearing from you. Our theme music is by Home. 
This week's episode was produced by Christina Monlos. Please take a moment, if you haven't already, to leave us a review on iTunes, uh, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews mean a lot to us, and they help new audiences discover the podcast. Thank you so much, and we will talk to you next week. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan.